0: Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i Faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, and perhaps aliens listening into this Baha'i Blogcast, welcome. I'm so excited for today's guest. This is an esteemed Gentlemen that I've been corresponding with for at least three years trying to get on the show and it just Didn't work out or fell through the cracks or for one reason or another and then due to an accidental email We were reunited and I'm so excited to have Louis Venters on the show now I don't have his full bio in front of me. I would like Dr. Venters. Yeah. Yeah as a matter of fact Okay, dr. Mm-hmm. Venters to tell us a little bit about his history and background. He's a historian. He's a professor. He's got a specialty in African-American studies and also maybe the world's number one historian of the history of the Baha'i faith in South Carolina, which is pretty darn exciting. But Dr. Venters, and then I'll call you, that's the only time I'll call you Dr. Venters. Please, then yeah, be thank you. Louis Venters. <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit about your background, what you do, and let's go all the way back. You know, how you became a Baha'i, your connection, and what brought you to this point to be having this podcast discussion Yeah, with me. man,
1: you got it. Um, so I actually live in the town where I was born, Florence, South Carolina, um, but, but never had any idea that I would end up back here. Um, I grew up on the other side of South Carolina in Greenville um, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and became a Baha'i when I was about 13. My family came um, back to this part of the state regularly because this is where my dad's family was from. And uh, I actually first heard about the Baha'i faith on the radio, on Radio Baha'i, which broadcasts from the Lewis Gregory Institute in Hemingway, South Carolina. That's my dad's family home, uh, Hemingway. And we were... Going to my grandmother's house or coming from my grandmother's house i don't remember and looking for a radio station and um, this was 1988 1989 when radio baha'i was was very young it had just been on the air a few years and we happened to happened upon this station and they were playing some jazz and then the announcer came on and i remember kind of vaguely, uh, it's been, <laughs> it's been a few years now. It was an African-American woman, and she said, uh, you've found it. This is Radio Baha'i Broadcasting, I don't remember exactly what she said, Broadcasting Love and Light in Eastern South Carolina, the voice of the Lewis Gregory Baha'i Institute. And I was like, what in the world? I don't even, I don't recognize those words. And I asked my folks, what is this? What is Baha'i? What is this? And, uh, and actually, both of my parents were somewhat familiar with the faith from well before I was born. My mother grew up um, mostly in Chicago, um, very close to the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette. And so her family had been there before, and she had done a report on the Baha'i faith when she was in high school. And and my dad's family uh, was from Hemingway, where the Louis Gregory Baha'i Institute is located, and so he knew something of it um, as well. His mother, my my paternal grandmother, it turns out, had had rented an apartment to one of the first Baha'is who came to settle in the town of Hemingway in like 1968 or 1970, and um, and and my grandmother had. I found this out years later. My mm-hmm. grandmother had gotten some blowback from from other local white people. Why did you let this foreign person, This where is she from? What kind of religion is she? And, and apparently, this is what my aunt told me, is that my grandmother got called out like this in the post office. And in a small town, Hemingway, South Carolina, the, the post office was like the place where people see each uh-huh. other and mm-hmm. so forth. And so getting called out in the post office was apparently a really big deal. But my grandmother, this gracious little... Mm-hmm southern lady said, well, she pays on time and she keeps that place clean and she is very pleasant to me and my family. So I don't think what her religion is, is any business of yours or mine. <laughs> and, and I figure in the grand scheme of things, the reason I became a Baha'i is because of her, right? And so, so her, her good deed, you know, transferred down mm. the generations maybe. But when, when she, when I, when I did become a Baha'i and she was a little, uh, a little upset about it. It it was was many years later. um, And after I had heard that story, and she was like, yet again, kind of, kind of pursing her lips and giving me that look about being a Baha'i, I I finally told her, well, like, you were the one who rented the apartment, right? You know that it's your (laughs) fault. If you don't like it, that's between you and God. And really, after that, she she started to mellow out a little bit. And by the end of her life, we lived just a few a few doors up from her. Uh, the last few years of her life, and uh, we would uh, share prayers together. And uh, she had kind of stopped going to church. She wasn't feeling as well and not not as mobile. And um, and so I would go over and say prayers with her, and she would hold my hand like she was holding on with everything she had. And it was one of the sweetest things, really. That that by 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 the time she was, you know, in her nineties, um, we had really had a a, a meeting of the hearts. Mm. Really, a blessing mm. before she passed. That's beautiful.
0: But talk me through this. You're 13 years old. Do You hear about the Baha'i Faith on the radio. Like, how do you become a Baha'i as an adolescent, or was that just the beginning of your study of the faith, or what happened exactly?
1: It was a little unusual, I guess. I first heard about it in in the car, right? Um, didn't do much about it then, although my parents kind of gave me a, you know, a, a good impression, but they couldn't tell me very much. So I went home, and I looked up Baha'i faith in the World Book Encyclopedia. That's dating myself, right? There were actual big, you know, physical encyclopedias on the shelf right. in our in our house. <laughs> I remember those. And it was a very short article that really basically had some some bullet points. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, the religion founded by uh, Mirza Hossein Ali, Baha'u'llah in Iran in the 19th century. And uh, there was a little bit about progressive revelation. All of the great religions come from the same God. The... Uh, central teaching is the oneness of humanity and uh, the the coming age of the peace of peace of the world and and I was like well it, it, this is manifestly true that makes all kind of sense and m- my only question at that point was well what do I do like so it, like are there other people <laughs> like do I do I go someplace do I change my name do I have to say different words you know what Uh, What's what's my next step to to be a part of this? And um, so I I ended up getting in touch with the local Baha'i community in my town.
0: And you're you're uh, thirteen, fourteen, twelve,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're like "Uh,
0: hello. uh, Yeah, (laughs) I'm. I was a a weird
1: kid, you know. (laughs) uh, What can I say? What can I say? I'm just trying to picture this. It's fantastic. So so the, the the secretary of the local spiritual assembly received my letter and called my house and talked to my folks and said, I'm not entirely sure that my own children are not playing a joke on me, but I have this letter that says that there's this, this 12, 13-year-old kid who wants to become a Baha'i. Is this is this legit? And my mom said, oh, oh, yeah, that's him. Let me let me let you talk to him. Um, <laughs> and so she invited us to uh, come to her home to uh talk to some people and learn some more and ask questions. And so my folks uh, and I went over a few times and, you know, I asked all, all my questions and the folks who were there were just, uh, wonderful in the way that they answered, uh, as I recall, not, not from, uh, n- not from their own interpretation, but they introduced me to, to the texts, right. To the, to the sacred mm-hmm. word and to, to turning to the words of Baha'u'llah and Abdul Baha when we have questions, they they just modeled everything uh, that that now looking back I, I see that they they ought to have done. They did a great job. Um, hmm. Everybody was very very respectful of my parents. My parents never became Baha'is. They still haven't thirty um, some years later. Although I think they both feel very very close to the faith and you know approve of of my path. So, I knew that I wanted to be a Baha'i. My folks were, you know, not quite as quick um, to, to see that as I was. And there was a while when I kept doing stuff with the church youth group and so forth. And uh, I had to go to talk to our priest and talk things through about what I wanted to do. And then finally, um, I said, nah, I, I really, really want this. But so the age of maturity in the bahai community is 15 right and so i was i was under age so when i signed up um, my parents had to had to sign too and so, so they approved <laughs> they um, and yeah. Uh, yeah. and you know and they told me this years later as well that they talked about this you know this is our 13 year old son kind of a headstrong kid If he wants to do this, if he really does, and we say no, then that will surely drive him away from us and towards it. Ah. And if something is wrong with it, then we're really up the creek, right? Mm -hmm. So what we ought to do is say yes, and then just watch and see what happens, right? And follow this, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which now, now that I'm a parent myself, I'm like, well, that's a Pretty brilliant stroke of parenting right there they did they did fine, and you know apparently <laughs> so many years later they're they're more or less satisfied with the way I turned out
0: i yeah. I, I would think so, <laughs> I would hope so, and becoming a Baha'i at such a young age in such a racially diverse place as South Carolina influence your career decision to study African American studies, African American history, southern yeah. history <sighs> yeah. um, in South Carolina. Uh, did those two go hand in hand?
1: Looking back, it seems that way, although, you know, looking out at the time, I, I, it wasn't clear. But yeah, you know, so I I, I was born and raised um, in the generation, the first generation after the civil rights movement. So I grew up in racially integrated schools, uh, and as a matter of fact, from elementary school to middle school to high school, the African-American population of my school increased significantly. I had Mm -hmm. black teachers from from very early on. So understanding African-Americans from a a very young age just seemed like, well, this is to understand reality, to understand life, Mm -hmm. to understand my Mm -hmm. environment. Like that's that's part of the deal. So then becoming a Baha'i in a a local Baha'i community that was very, very uh, racially uh, diverse and where African-Americans were in many ways very influential in the tone and the culture and the priorities of the local community. So I just felt Mm -hmm. enveloped by by African-American culture, by black Mm -hmm. love was just part Mm -hmm. of the way I associated the love and the feeling of being a Baha'i was... Mm the love of African-American people, right? Mm. And the love mm. of white and black people and, and actually a, 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 a nice sprinkling of, of Iranian refugees in that community. The love mm-hmm. that they showed each other, that to me as a 13, 14 year old, that's what it meant to, to be a Baha'i was wow. these bonds, beautiful. right? Beautiful. So yes, all that is setting me up, right? I didn't know I wanted to be a historian, but by the time I got to high school, um, I had a, a project to do and I decided, okay, let me... Let me write a little bit about the Baha'i faith in South Carolina because these older Baha'is would tell me and, and the other young ones about the days of the 1970s, right? They would tell stories about this first dramatic upsurge of, of growth of the Baha'i community anywhere in North America that had taken place in, in my state. And, and so let me back up for a second. So as a, a native South Carolinian, and, and a white person of, I guess, somewhat progressive outlook, I, I was, even at the time, perfectly used to my state being at the bottom of every list, right? Mm-hmm. Any, any measure of human happiness and well-being, you can expect South mm-hmm. Carolina to be, you know, in the bottom echelon in the United States, Right. So here I was, this young Baha'i, this teenager, and these older folk are telling me that as a matter of fact, within the universe of, of the worldwide Baha'i community, my state was at the top. My state was wow. distinctive
0: <laughs> for the right reasons, right? Uh, and can we? can I just interrupt mm-hmm, one second? Yeah. Because we have a lot of global listeners that don't know the fact that the Baha'i faith is the number two religion in the state of South Carolina. There was ma- huge mass teaching efforts in the early and mid-70s there, and it really catapulted the Baha'i population of South Carolina. And it has a, just a rich cultural, religious legacy as well. That's right. Just to, as a little background to this. Now, and,
1: yeah. now, and just to be clear, anywhere in the United States to be the second largest religion in a state is not necessarily something to write home about. This is an overwhelmingly Christian country, an overwhelmingly Protestant country. Um, yeah. So just it
0: just means not so many Jews in th- South there, Carolina. There, That's there, all. It there means. are
1: in fact more Bahais than Jews and Muslims put together in South Carolina. It's it's a it's, wow. it's quite unusual. And what it's,
0: is the what is the population
1: approximately? mean these numbers uh, uh, um, are at this point. Date, I think but. about the last I remember seeing um, about seventeen thousand Bahais in South Carolina. So it's and there's mm-hmm. the population is five million. So it's an infinitesimally mm-hmm. small number, but in the context of a young world religion, that's that's still kind sure. of a big deal. And it's the only state so, out of the, the 50 states where where the Baha'i Faith is
0: in fact number two. Yeah. So you're going yeah. back to you, this was a source of pride. You're a young, young, uh, nascent right, Baha'i, right. and it's a great source of pride. Hey, look, we're good at, we're something. Good we're at number we're two. We're good at
1: teaching the Baha'i <laughs> Faith, and South Carolinians <laughs> are good apparently at responding to the Baha'i teachings, right? And becoming Baha'is. Why don't more people know about this? This seems like a great story. I'm going to do my little paper, my senior paper on this in high school. So I I set out to write about the 70s, and I figured I ought to just go a little bit back and see. Well, so what? Who, who was around? You know, before this this kind of upsurge and. I got back to the 1950s in, in the people that I interviewed and some of, the, uh, sure. some of the documents that I looked at. I'm happy to say that that, uh, that high school paper has been lost. I don't think anybody ah. will <laughs> ever, ever see that. But it was important to me because it got me started. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I studied history in college after my year of service and um, did a little bit of more work about, about the Baha'is in South Carolina. And then uh, went abroad again after college and ended up back in South Carolina and ended up in graduate school at the University of South Carolina, knowing that I had this in, in my heart that somebody has to write about the Baha'i faith in this state. Yeah, Who is going to do that? I don't know how to do I want to do that. I don't know how to do that. Somebody has to teach me how to do that, right? So I have to mm-hmm. go and get some more school um, to do it. And so I walked into my first class in graduate school, and the class was African-American intellectual history. And I was a little bit terrified. Uh, the professor was clearly brilliant and I didn't know whether my topic, you know, let me write about the Baha'is in South Carolina. I didn't know if this was going to fly. I didn't know how I was going to get laughed out of the room. And what he did for that class was to ask each of us to go around the circle and share an intellectual biography of ourselves, right? Mm. How did you get to this place? And so it finally, finally, finally got around the room to me and I said oh what the hell I'm just going to say it and so I did my intellectual biography and I said and you know and in, in terms of what I'm I'm hoping to do in graduate school I'm really interested in the bahai faith in South Carolina and interracial fellowship and maybe how that intersected with the civil rights movement. There's this one particular uh, figure that I've already studied some. His name is Louis Gregory. He was a Charlestonian and, and the professor interrupted me. And the professor leaned across the table and looked at me and he said, Louis Gregory? You know Louis Gregory? And I was taken aback. I said, well, no, he died before I was... Oh, yes, I know of Louis Gregory. I was totally Mm -hmm. Mm flummoxed. And he said, um, Louis Gregory was an intellectual. I said, yes, yes, indeed, he was. And I realized that my... He explained later, um, my professor had had a Baha'i student when he was doing a fellowship someplace else in the Northeast. And that student, who happened to be one of my best friends, had written a paper for this same professor about Louis Gregory, who was really among the founding fathers of the Baha'i community in in South Carolina Mm. and and indeed the United States. And so my professor knew exactly what I was talking Mm. about, Mm. said, yes, you need to do this. This is a story that has to be told. Mm. There is probably enough to last you your whole career in this
0: topic. Is this crazy? But is it like... Baha'u'llah reached down. Here's this nerdy, iconoclastic white kid. Let's tune on this <laughs> radio station. Boom, he hears it. He becomes a Baha'i in his heart. He travels around, does a youth year of service, a bunch of other stuff. He writes a history paper a his senior year in high school. Then let's send him to this college and in his first class, first ha- class. have him meet a guy who studied under and learned about Lewis Gregory. You know, the, the the father, in so many ways, not just of like the African American Bahai community, like one of the fathers of the American Bahai community, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and sending you on your way there. I, I sense a little bit the the winds of the of the divine guidance, a little bit of the the fingers coming from the beyond, helping Louis Venter's to historicalize and categorize and study this this world i'm not i know you're a very humble man you're not going to say yes i was i'm divinely (laughs) i was divinely sent to do this work but sitting from my position you were so you don't even have to respond Uh, uh,
1: no yeah i do want to respond it's it's you know (laughs) when 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 people ask me, when, when younger folks ask me, you know, so how did you become a historian? How would you, you know, how would you suggest I go about becoming a historian? I, you know, I, I can't say do it like I did it because my path was so convoluted mm-hmm. and I, I felt so much of the time like like I didn't know what the next step was that, I, you know, I wasn't even, I wasn't even doing it. So uh, so I, I don't know I don't know what to say except that it really feels like I ended up in the right place at the right time and I'm I'm grateful and when I you know complain about you know too many of my students uh, exams to grade and so forth and trying to balance all the things in my life like I just I, I try and remind myself listen this is <laughs> this is my bliss this is exactly exactly what I wanted and it's been, given to me. Mm-hmm. So, so shut up, stop complaining, just <laughs> do the work and enjoy, you know, enjoy what you got. It's, um, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. But
0: I, I, I want to, before we move on, and I really want to get into the books that you've written, um, No Jim Crow Church and a History of the Baha'i Faith in South Carolina. But yeah. before we go there, just tell me really quick, you, you've bounced around the globe a lot also and served as a Baha'i in a lot of other areas. could you right. tell me a little bit right. about, about that work? Yeah. So, um, So I, uh, uh, between
1: high school and college, I did uh, basically a school year of service in West Africa in the Republic of Togo. Um, I took French in middle school and high school and wanted to go someplace outside the United States. It was the first time I'd been um, outside the U.S. um, And I was uh, a a tutor at the brand new National Baha'i Institute um, in Togo uh, for about nine months. Um, and came back to the States and thought, surely I was just going to do my, uh, my university education so that I could go back to West Africa, and things kind of changed a little bit. A couple of years after I finished university, I was working some, um, but still hadn't quite figured out exactly what to do with myself. I, <laughs> I got married, which was wonderful, um, to a young woman who had, she was a U.S. citizen and, and also, well white on the outside at least but she grew up in honduras and nicaragua so she was very much a caribbean person as far as i was concerned uh culturally and got married and we ended up naturally getting a job in uh, bosnia the first year we were married so we went straight to to um, south central europe this was five years after the Dayton Peace Accords. Yep. So the, the civil war in Bosnia was very, very fresh. There were still pockmarks in all the buildings and and scars in the people you know that you, mm. that you mostly mm. couldn't see. Uh, and we were there for a year. We came back, uh, we had vacation <laughs> and went to stay with her folks in Nicaragua for a while um, when the September 11th uh, attacks happened. And so we were kind of shut out of the United States for a while and finally came back in, 2001, and have made our, our home here uh, since then. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I I do feel that my, that international experience just ch- changed the trajectory of my life completely, especially starting out in, in Togo. I knew by that point how something about African culture in uh, uh, having been transported across the ocean because of the slave trade and how. How African many Americans were mm-hmm. right in our in our uh, culture, especially in in South Carolina very very interesting Creole society right but haven't haven't gone then in the opposite direction across the ocean back to Africa to live and be with people there and see with my own eyes um America, South Carolina from. The African side of things mm-hmm. was uh, mm-hmm. uh, really transformative. Eternally grateful that I ended up doing that at such a formative period of, of my life.
0: Mm. Yeah. What did you learn from the Togo Bahai community? Oh my
1: gosh! So this was uh, 1994, 1995, and what was what was beginning around the world in Bahai communities at that time was a systematization of grassroots education Mm -hmm. in the Baha'i community using a curriculum that was you know originally developed in Colombia in South America and uh, experimented with in different places there and um, so in Togo they were just beginning to use these materials from the Ruhi Institute and I had barely heard about these materials this curriculum before in the United States and found myself in a position of having to Learn the materials very quickly and uh, and and help to spread them around the country. Just as their national training institute was uh, getting off the ground, so my my approach to Baha'i education and the and Baha'i community development was really formed there in in the crucible of learning how to learning how to use these materials. The Baha'i community in Togo was so full of joy. The Arts really permeated life Mm. there. The Baha'i community used music and dance as a part of every meeting. Mm. In fact, I remember my first 19 day feast, we had the devotional portion first, and I was this, you know, this young know it all from the United States. And like we got through to the end of the devotional portion, and nobody had sung anything. And I was like, oh my gosh, no, I thought. I'm coming to Africa. Why has nobody sung anything? Ah. Uh, so I sang a song, right? My little, my little <laughs> song. And um, and, you were they, like, and everybody nodded and said, "Oh my oh God!" On. Yes, just, just it was, it was, it was awful, uh, pretty ugly. And so they all said, "Merci, merci, thank you." That was great. And then moved to the consultative portion, and then. And then I figured out why nobody sang at the beginning is because the social portion, oh. they bring the food around, they bring out the drums, oh. and people spend two hours singing and dancing every Baha'i song that they know, right? Wow. I was dumbfounded. Mm, I was like, mm. oh, I think I just figured out how to worship. I think I just figured out how to bring joy into every bit of the practice of the Baha'i community. And I also think I just learned how to shut up and listen mm. before I wade in and and try and mm. uh, proffer my wisdom.
0: Lord have mercy. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, let's get to your books. So yeah, book I read and greatly enjoyed, No Jim Crow Church, uh, fascinating study of the Baha'is in South Carolina, the Baha'i movement there. But for those who are listening from around the world, what, is, what does that mean? What is, what is Jim Crow in a super nutshell? I think most people probably know what it means. And then what, what does the title of the book refer to? Right, right.
1: So Jim Crow is the, the system of racial separation and exclusion and discrimination in the United States that came up in the late 19th century so several decades after the u.s civil war was concluded Mm -hmm. and lasted all the way up through the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s and in some respects there were pieces of this system that stayed around until the 1970s and there are ways in which you could say Jim Crow in terms of neighborhood segregation, like residential segregation, sure. the mass incarceration in the United States, particularly of black and brown men. There are aspects of the Jim Crow sure. order that that persist and cast a very, very long shadow over the United States. But the height of the system is, say, 1890 to 1964, 1965, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And the Voting Rights Act, that were that was really the, the legislative high point mm-hmm. of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And so this is the system that we mostly associate with the South, the southern United States, where in the 19th and first half of the 20th centuries, that's where the vast majority of African Americans lived, was in, in the South, where the system of slavery had been most prominent. Mm-hmm. And it was segregation in public spaces. It was separate schools, separate churches, separate public accommodations of all kinds. It was persistent economic discrimination. It's not that there was no place for African American people in this order. There was a place for them right smack at the bottom of of the economic system, Mm. right, in the lowest paying work. And it was a system that was policed in every way by violence and the threat of violence it was the exclusion of african americans from any kind of po- formal political decision making so that's that's the jim crow system it existed in other ways in other parts of the country in the south uh, is where it's mostly codified where it's it's written into the law but practices of jim crow took place all all over the united states you know sammy davis junior could play in the clubs in Las Vegas in the 1950s and 1960s, but he couldn't stay in the same hotel where he had just played. Wow. California, until 1947, mandated a segregated education in several different directions, right? There, there was white schools, black schools, Asian schools, and Hispanic schools, right? So Jim Crow might look different depending on what state of the United States you're in, but one of the things I tell my students all the time is that, yes white supremacy is certainly at the heart of the South, the Southern United States. But we have to acknowledge that, that racism, white supremacy is, is an American disease that everybody suffers from mm-hmm. in every part of the country, mm-hmm. but maybe with you know, different, different local context.
0: Yeah. So how, is, um, how so, is the Baha'i faith no mm-hmm. Jim Crow Church?
1: Right, so what happened after the Civil War in the United States is that black Christians in the South, they formed their own congregations, their own Christian churches, where they could have administrative control over their own affairs, where they could practice their own form of of Christian worship and so forth, free of white interference. And in fact, one of the underlying ideas in American white supremacy is a spiritual distinction between white and black, that the souls of black people are somehow different than those of whites. White people are closer to God, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So the segregation of religious practice was an integral part of 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 American Christianity, of American Protestantism, and certainly all over the South because because black Christians couldn't be in the same spaces as white Christians as equals. They weren't permitted. Yeah. Sorry, you're gonna ask your yeah, question. No,
0: and I, and I, I it just popped into mind because when you go back into history and you go back into imperialist colonization of the West from the European powers and slavery, which followed quickly on its heels, it really was, it seems like, a a series of religious decisions that were made in the Vatican and other places around that point in time that kind of was like, hey, how are we going to justify this? (laughs) How -hmm, are we going to justify taking slaves and how are we going to justify like killing hundreds of thousands or millions or and trying to convert them, and, and so that little thing that you mentioned, oh, I'm not disparaging what you said, but that little thing you mentioned of like, oh, black people's souls are different than ours, like really was kind of a justification for the slaughter of tens of millions of people by just yeah. saying they're not equal in the sight of God. They're not going to yep, heaven unless yep. they convert to Christianity, but even then, they're not gonna be at a higher place, as high a place in heaven. This was a kind of a huge decision made in like the fifteenth sixteenth century to to justify, you know, this all this carnage in uh, later on in history, wouldn't you say?
1: Absolutely, oh, that's very well said. I mean, I, I'll invite you to some of my classes, uh, just so you can repeat it uh, so succinctly. But that's that's exactly right. It's the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is how does one portion of the human race that considers itself to be good and moral and followers of Jesus how does it justify in its own mind and to the world mm. the brutal subjugation of another portion of the human race which has done it no wrong yeah. right there, you know in the middle ages there's this doctrine among christians and, and muslims did the same thing that like you can you can uh, enslave people that you conquer in war, right? You can enslave, Christians can enslave Muslims, right? But you can't, you can't, uh, you know, enslave Christians. You can't enslave your neighbor. It's foreigners, right? Muslims did the same thing in in reverse, right? You can't enslave Muslims. You can, you can enslave foreigners, right? Um, If if you have been at war with somebody and in the Mediterranean region, right? Christians and Muslims at war with each other a Mm -hmm. lot, you know, they have this history of of you know justifying slavery of each other but then you know once those portuguese went went all the way around the bulge of west africa and and found you know sub saharan africans there were lots of goods that they were interested in. You know, the first reason that they went down the coast was to for African gold, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't slavery that they had in mind at all. Mm-hmm. But as the sugar industry developed and there was this need for labor and there's this this available labor force, but but sugar is so brutal. Sugar on these Atlantic islands where they started it first and then in Brazil and the Caribbean, sugar, sugar plantations were a death sentence. Yeah. And these good Christian people knew it. They knew it full well. Sure, They knew that these, these sub-Saharan African people were not their opponents in war, right? There's, there was the traditional justification of why you can take them slaves. Like, it's out the window. We have to come up with something else so that we can sleep at night. And they casted around. There was a, a number of different strands and threads and different kind of ideas. And yeah, what they settled on was you know, maybe God created them too. Maybe there was still one creation, but something happened to those people. They are less, less favored in God's sight and way far down the chain of civilization. And so actually I'll, we are doing them a favor by enslaving them and exposing them to, to civilization. Mm. I, the mental gymnastics yeah. that have to ensue when you know that you are committing spiritual sin, right? Mm-hmm. Y- your, mm-hmm. your soul knows that what you're doing is evil. And so that little brain has to come up with some way of, of making it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I mean, in a nutshell, that's a fine way of explaining a great deal of American history um, in the United States. And really throughout, throughout the Western hemisphere, these, the, the mental gymnastics yeah. and the fragility in a way, the psychic fragility of, White, white people who construed themselves as white, who defined themselves. F- finally, you know, it wasn't Christendom that that Europeans talked about anymore. It was whiteness that they talked mm, about. Mm. They they construed themselves as a different kind of human being, but in order to 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 keep that position, the the intellectual architecture, right, the religious architecture, yeah. is is what comes before. Really, you have the The practical means of subjugation. The ideas are at the root of of white supremacy. Yes, it's an economic system. Yes, it's a
0: political yeah, system. Yeah. But, but we have to interrogate the the ideas as much as anything else. So take us back now to no Jim Crow church. They were allowed to have segregation of worship, so there were black churches and there were white churches that formed in the. 20s, 30s, 40s right right, right.
1: So when the Baha'i faith arrived in the United States in the 1890s, it was just as this system of, of racial segregation was beginning to, to, to harden and take take on new life. 1890s is when the Jim Crow system is really it really comes into being. Mm. So the Baha'is very quickly as people of different kinds of racial and ethnic backgrounds, came in contact with the faith they had choices to make very quickly about what what does an american bahai movement look like Mm. is it going to look like the the other religious groups in the country which in one way or another are they're either like um, ethnically bound right judaism or here's you know an Italian neighborhood with an Italian Catholic church and over there it's an Irish neighborhood with an Irish Catholic church or, and then, you know, and then as far as, you know, black and white are concerned, you know, segregation according to race, uh, is, is it going to be light on that model of religion, religious practice or, or what, what do we do with this central teaching of Baha'u'llah of the oneness of humanity? What's the, Mm. What's mm. the practical implication when we live in a society that is in every possible way trying to head in the opposite direction of the oneness of humanity, fighting tooth and nail against the oneness of humanity. Right. And here's this little sweet little religion just come off the boat, literally. <laughs> how, how, how does it constitute itself? And so especially as the, as the faith moved Gain footholds in the south. These questions came came to the fore. There's no papering over, right? It it becomes very very obvious in in cities where there's a large African American population. Yeah. Either it's it's one Baha'i community in a in a town, or it's it's going to be you know segregated compartments.
0: And it, it, it and it was interesting in your book. You talked a lot about Washington D.C. and that was such an interesting. Yeah. That's a fascinating history of this sure, sure. kind of split Baha'i community. Half of the Baha'i community meeting you know, in a segregated fashion and half the community wanting to meet and integrate and Abdu'l-Bahá yeah, yeah, corresponding bet. with both sides and Shoghi Effendi corresponding with them. Yeah. It kind of was the, yeah. the nexus because it really is a southern city. Um, yeah. Uh,
1: Washington was the crucible in a turn of the 20th century America. That was the big city in the United States that had the biggest black population because it was the federal capital of, it was the place where a lot of african american intelligentsia came it was the, it was the intellectual capital of black america there were a lot of teachers there was so this was and this was the first city with a large black population where the bahai faith gained a foothold mm-hmm. so this was the crucible this was the place where its make it or break it right here what is the bahai faith in the united states going to be and there were white bahais who either, you know, because of commitment or because of timidity. You know, they were not interested in rocking the boat, right? And there were others, white and black, who said, you know, this boat <laughs> is meant to be rocked. That is, in fact, why there is a new manifestation of God. It's precisely to rock this kind of boat. And, they, and in the first couple decades of the 20th century, they, they experimented. And they um, stepped on each other's toes and hurt each other's feelings and did their best to be obedient to Abdu'l-Bahá, the center of the faith, who constantly, constantly advised them to be together, to be together. Don't get yourselves killed. Be together as much as you can. Uphold the standard of the oneness of humanity Push as much as you're able. Constantly bring the hearts together. When black and white are in intimate fellowship, it's a cause of light in the world. It is is world historically significant, Mm. says Abdu'l-Bahá over and over and over again. This is a cause of the world's peace. If you, black and white Bahais in Washington... There are many letters that are directed specifically to the Washington community. Uh, and and he says, you know, in, in so many words, like, this is the place where we have to have to make the, this work. And in fact, of course, Abdul Baha came to the United States, and some of his most memorable incidents in his uh, his long stay in the United States are in Washington, DC, mm-hmm. where he personally brought black and white together in public and in private. In, you know, in high society kinds of occasions yeah. and regular middle class kinds of occasions and working class occasions, Abdu'l-Bahá was uh, fearless in his speech and also in his action in terms of, of bringing black and white together. And that example made made all the difference for the Baha'is in Washington and really in the United States. Mm. That was the standard then. They had seen it with their own eyes. Yeah. And so they knew that as Abdu'l-Bahá further directed them, to scatter and settle in other states of the United States and you know particularly go to the south and the the mountain west where there there weren't many bahais they they knew what the yeah what the model was they knew what the standard was and the standard was in many ways that Washington DC community where they had been in the trenches and come out firmly on the side of there's only one bahai community in a city and all the bahais black and white and everything else, they constitute one body. And that's the only <laughs> the only way you can be a Baha'i in the United States is, is together. So the Washington community broke Jim Crow. They broke the rules. They created an alternative reality in the very, very early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were virtually alone among religious communities in the United States at the time. As the faith moved south more and more in the 1920s 1930s there are even even more localities cities and and towns where uh, the same kind of challenges that Washington had had encountered are now being replicated you know all all over all over the south and s- similar kinds of personality differences and differences of approach and you know uh, the further south you got the the more rigid yeah the standard of Jim Crow became, and the harder it was to, to transgress, right? The more dangerous it was wow. um, to transgress. But, and, and there's um, so many stories, not just from South Carolina, but, but across the South, people, black and white, really putting themselves at risk, finding creative ways to sort of get around the gaze of their neighbors and the police. In my book, there's uh, examples of the local police, the FBI, newspapers all kinds of opposition from the white power structure sometimes it's white ministers um, sometimes it's even black ministers their role in upholding some aspects of jim crow is is kind of kind of interesting so the bahais are are f- trying to find creative ways to create new racially integrated local bahai communities all over the south in in ways that are as safe as possible, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, it was really hard. So the title of the book then comes from, from this kind of dilemma, this kind of dynamic, right? How is the Baha'i faith going to grow and develop in the United States, in in the South in particular? Is it going to be just like all the other Jim Crow churches? Right. Or is it going to be something, something different? And I think, I mean, the, the point of the book is, it was small right numerically small yeah. in the period that i cover but but quite significant right you know major transformations in a society usually don't start with the masses of people adopting new ways of thinking right it's there's a you know a creative minority small pockets of people the abolitionist movement was like that The women's suffrage movement in the United States was like that. You know, it's small groups of people who are motivated by a new vision and put themselves on the line. and. In retrospect, make all the difference in the world. So these these little Bahais in Greenville, South Carolina, and Columbia, South Carolina, and North Augusta, South Carolina, who were sometimes having to go through the back door in the, each other's houses mm. to not you know to not stir things up to have and then they close the curtains <laughs> and would have their Bahai meetings where they're serving each other, black and white, serving each other, mm. tea and refreshments and praying together, right. Neither black nor white is in charge of the Baha'i community right. and letting the others come as guests, right? No, it's we're doing this together. It didn't look like revolution, right? It, it, they, they didn't grab the headlines everywhere they went. But in the history of this spiritual aspect of white supremacy, right? The act of black and white sitting down together as equals sharing a meal together in in loving fellowship Mm. you know tea and cookies really do become weapons of revolution right (laughs) um in in that sense
0: that's fantastic i mean the way you describe that and summarize it uh it's so beautiful it's so moving it stirs my heart to think of these that act of spiritual revolution of closing the curtains and serving each other tea and cookies. It's it's so beautiful. And quickly because I want to get on to the mass teaching of the Baha'is in the in the 1970s but what role sure. did Louis Gregory play in this uh, hand of the cause Gregory traveled a lot in the area during those years sure. in helping form these communities.
1: Sure. Louis Gregory was instrumental. He was born in Charleston so he was a native South Carolinian in he grew up in the the first generation after the civil war and when he became a bahai in Washington DC where he was living uh, from the very beginning he recognized that his work was to bring the faith to particularly to more african americans and to be a, to help the bahais to Cement this uh, this interracial movement, and to represent that to the world, and to learn from other progressive voices in the United States. You know how, how to how to keep the Bahais moving forward, and how the Bahais could encourage others in the United States, the Urban League and the NAACP, encourage them to continue their their vital work. So he he served as a. Uh, in, in a number of ways, right? So he traveled all over the South and all over the country. And in his in his travels, he would do a number of things. He, depending on, on the circumstances, he helped found local Baha'i communities. Yeah. He always sought out intellectuals, teachers, African-American and Euro-American and other uh, l- leaders in the local community who seemed progressive and would share the Baha'i faith with them and would also then report back to the National Baha'i community here are the people that I met in Nashville here are the people that I met in Greensboro here are the people that I met in Columbia so kind of serving as a as a bridge in, in terms of discourse in society uh, between the Baha'is and and other other groups that were particularly pushing for for uh, uh, racial justice. Mm-hmm. And in South Carolina, he was, uh, he visited Charleston, uh, his own hometown many times, um, Columbia, Orangeburg, where there are two uh, black universities, Greenville, where I grew up, and that part of the state over and over and over again from 1910, his uh, his first Baha'i teaching trip undertaken just a year after he became a Baha'i himself, all the way up through the 1940s when he, he was, you know, to Uh, frail to travel. Mm. Um, So to to the very end of his life, he kept coming back to the South and kept coming back to to South Carolina. And there's some truly precious photographs of Mr. Gregory with with local Baha'is in South Carolina. There are plenty of Newspaper articles that, that attest sort of the the speaking engagements and so forth all over the state. Um, so he, he left his mark you know, tangibly, right? We have these records, but also he you know he he certainly left his mark. Mm. Um, in
0: in people's hearts. Well, in some um, ways, he created that foundation which allowed for the then the mass teaching efforts of the '70s. And I, and I don't know much about it. I was I was a little kid Baha'i in the '70s, and people were like oh, everyone's yeah. going to South Carolina and going around and teaching and and. I heard there were great struggles and great difficulties during that time. And, but can you give us a a mini history about how all of that work of Mr. Gregory's leading up to 1971 and kind of the launch of the mass teaching movement and the kind of. So (laughs)
1: when, when Mr. Gregory first came south to share the Baha'i message in 1910, the report that he wrote afterwards said, I was able to share the glad tidings with some, you know, 800 or 900 people in these eight cities and towns. And everywhere I went, people were enthusiastic, people accepted the message. Now, the B- national Baha'i community in 1910 was, had a rudimentary administrative structure. So those people may have expressed that they believed and identified themselves somehow as Baha'is, but the system of sort of keeping track and nurturing those into, into new little local Baha'i communities, that, that had yet to be developed. But there from the beginning, he says that if, especially, to use his words, the colored people of the South will respond in great numbers to this message if it is delivered to them with fragrance, right? That's how the, that first mm. report reads. Mm. So from the very beginning, he knows that there's the potential for a great response, that this message will be transformative. Now, the problem is, <laughs> in the teens and 20s and 30s, when a whole lot of black people in the South get together... In public or in private, with a new and radical message, people get hurt. Mm. When labor unions do it, when the communists show up in the 1930s, anything that has to do with interracial cooperation, anything that has to do with empowering African Americans, is is their violence will come. And in fact, there are ways that we see this under the Jim Crow regime In North Augusta, South Carolina, there was, in the 1930s, there was this this great document that I found. It's this this older Baha'i's recollections of of when when she was uh, younger in in North Augusta, and she said that, so there was a a, a Baha'i meeting that started in the home of uh, a working class black woman, and at first they spoke to just a little room full, and then The next week, they spoke to a room and another room full. And then the next week, it was the whole house and the porch. And then the week after that, it was a whole yard full. And and the way she wrote it was, and then after that, to a great gathering, right? As if a a house and a porch and a a yard full was still small, but Mm -hmm. then it was a great gathering. But she said, then the house became suddenly dark and closed to us. Because the authorities found out that there was a large number of colored people gathering together, right? Mm. So here you have this, this an additional testimony, right, of, I don't know, what is that? Dozens, hundreds of people who are expressing this vital, vibrant interest in the Baha'i message, and they got shut down. This is, under the Jim Crow system, this is dangerous. What happens then when the civil rights movement... Mm progresses to the extent that it becomes less dangerous for African Americans to express themselves in public. Mm. What happens when the civil rights movement registers enough victories, right, at the federal level and then, you know, at the state and local level that the Jim Crow system starts to, there are cracks in the system, Mm -hmm. right? And, And there's ways that you can break through the system and people are not as likely to get hurt and killed. Hmm. That's when the Baha'i faith is finally able to to really begin to flourish. right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. the the, the ground was so hard that these seeds had a a hard time sprouting. Mm. But then, you know, the the civil rights movement comes in and, and tills the soil. And then you come and and share with Southerners, black and white, that, you know, there's a new messenger of God that has come to the world, the reason for all of the upheavals that we're experiencing in our society and around the world is because of the force of this new message. His will is that all the peoples of the world be one tribe, one family, that there be justice in this country and around the world. You say that to African-American people. In South Carolina and other southern states in 1968, 1969, 1970, 71, boy, that's when you see them begin to move as likely their parents or grandparents would have in 1910 Mm. had Mm. they been able to, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's what happens uh, essentially in in the Deep South in the very late 60s and, and through the decade of the 1970s is experimenting with methods and approaches that are in some ways um, inspired by civil rights organizing. How do you take the Baha'i message to, you know, all kinds of neighborhoods in a southern city and and beyond them really into the countryside? And so you saw in the first uh, big campaign in South Carolina in 1970-71, we're coming up on the, the 50th anniversary, it took place over the Christmas holidays, um, there were probably about 10,000 people, mostly in, in rural parts of South Carolina, mostly African-American, but there were also white people, also Native Americans, mm. uh, who became Baha'is in the space of six or eight weeks. Wow. Nothing like that had happened in, in North America before. The The American Baha'i community in general was enthused about it and also uh, kind of overwhelmed. Um, how do we integrate such a large number of new people into the the structure and the and the community of, of the Baha'i faith sort of overnight they hadn't been faced with that with that uh, that question before and uh, it turned out to be quite challenging actually for for a number of reasons the momentum um, from the 1970s from that initial campaign was it continued into additional campaigns during the rest of the 70s and then um, the last big one was uh, 1985, 1986 in South Carolina and Georgia, and there were a number, another um, 2,500, 3,000 uh, people who became Baha'is in, in the space of, of a couple of years. And the questions that arose were about methods of Baha'i education, uh, building Baha'i community life in rural places that the rest of the American Baha'i community didn't really have any experience in that cultural context, mm-hmm. right? what do you do when you've got this huge number of new friends, new associates in this great enterprise who many of them, um, you know, because of where they've grown up, they have maybe minimal literacy, right? Mm-hmm. The American Baha'i community is, has been very much centered on the word, right? And, and reading is such an important part of American Baha'i practice. I mean, by 1972, about a third of the bahais in the united states lived in south carolina wow there were you know 60,000 bahais in the country and 20,000 bahais in south carolina right it's it's so it's it's a what do we do when that many of us are from such a different cultural and socioeconomic situation right so there was energetic experimentation in South Carolina, other places in the Deep South, with transforming the Baha'i community, right? Not just acting upon these new people, but these new people, quote unquote, they also t- transformed the American Baha'i community, transformed its identity. When American Baha'is say, who are we, mm. right? By the 1970s, a big part of that question is, we are black southerners. Mm. That was a new, a, a new thing in the American Baha'i community, right? when by the 1970s when american bahais say you know what what is our purpose right to a large extent a, a, a lot of that question is our purpose is to is to uh, to uplift to liberate the human potential of rural communities across the south and the west right people took the, the successes in South Carolina and went to other places in the United States with similar kinds of methods. Let's see about this population. Let's try this in my town. This was a part of a movement all over the world, really, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, all over Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean, um, a number of places in Asia and the Pacific. There's similar kind of movement of people in what people called at the time, you know, the, the third world, right? Mm-hmm moving into the forefront of the global Baha'i community. In fact, the 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 world Baha'i population shifts decisively in these decades towards the equator, right? So South Carolina, what you see is a, a part of this this process that set the whole Baha'i movement on on a new path of developing human resources in every possible cultural milieu, in every possible uh, social and economic situation, the, the developing the practical means for unleashing human potential. And so South Carolina was involved in that that really huge process that has lasted a number of decades. And the fruit of it now is the the training institute, this, uh, this system of, of education that at this point really spans the globe. It's open-ended and self-replicating so that as people come into it, they themselves move into the forefront of then bringing others into the system yeah. and, and training them. It's uh, South Carolina's fits and starts and, and challenges over these several decades yeah. are, were a part of developing this uh, this system.
0: And it's, um, I remember talking to someone at the Bahai National Center about the, the media campaign that they did in the late 90s. And they had 100,000 people Call in. That's when they set up the one eight hundred twenty two unite number, and and there was no follow through, and they couldn't. They realized swiftly. Oh, we always thought the problem was going to be finding interested people no we there's interested people out there we don't know how to bring them in we don't know how to fold them in we don't know how to deepen them and bring them into community life and and connect with them there's no there's no follow through so i imagine that those lessons learned during that time were very much reflected in the institute process and the the core activities of the late 90s early 2000s kind of coming on to line hey we're going to need a foundation to to bring people in through a sequence of courses, get them praying together, take care of their kids, home visits—all of this stuff—maybe was out of those of those valuable lessons.
1: Well, you know, I, I think, in a nutshell, one thing that that became quickly clear, starting in South Carolina, was okay. It is amazing to have ten thousand new Baháís in the space of six weeks, but maybe we should have backed up a little bit right maybe maybe, maybe that's actually more than than our, the structures of our community at this moment can can handle yeah. right they don't know automatically how to be Baha'is just because you know they've had just because an individual has has had a a, a spiritual experience convincing them of the truth of a new revelation doesn't doesn't mean that, all of the next steps are, are intuitive, right? And moreover, the existing Baha'i community has to change changes as new people come in, right? So so nobody, nobody was ready for, uh, for what would happen with, when thousands of people uh, embrace the faith at the same time. The thing is, the only way we can all learn together what to do when thousands of people become Baha'is all at once is to be faced with that challenge, right? Is to be faced with that, mm. right? mm-hmm. faced with that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So the Universal House of Justice said a number of years ago, uh, well, it was in a, a, a document that was commissioned by the House of Justice called Century of Light a uh, really brilliant, brilliant treatise that, that treats the 20th century among the Baha'is and, and, and in the world at large and how these kind of connect with each other. And when they review this period, the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the statement is, there's no other way we could have done this except to to learn the way we did, right? To to jump into it and experiment and, and learn. And in South Carolina, you know, uh, Part of the story I think that's really significant is that there were so many people, both new Baha'is who, who became active and consecrated and really dedicated their time and their energy to the development of the community and, and, and folks who moved from other places and you know this mixture of people who made it their business, made it their life's work to, to continue this process. Mm-hmm to nurture new Baha'is, to uh, visit people in the most remote hamlets. I, I don't know how you would calculate the thousands and thousands of miles that were put on Automobiles. There were there were Bahais in South Carolina that ran their cars into the ground, ah. visiting people, visiting people, visiting people, right? Praying with people, uh, deepening with people. Here, let's you know. Let's. Uh, did you receive your American Baha'i? Let's look together at the, the latest articles, the latest news, <laughs> right? Um. Uh, uh, there there were <laughs> there were s- there were so many people who worked in this process of consolidation and community building. The problem is there weren't enough, right? We didn't have the means yet of raising up enough from among the population who could then you know, be guides for, for mm. the rest. Mm. That, that took time to figure out that, that system. And that's what the Training Institute does now, is we can accommodate dozens, hundreds, Thousands, right? A local Baha'i community builds its capacity step-by-step mm-hmm. step mm-hmm. to be able to embrace hundreds and thousands of, of new new believers and, and others who associate with us in Baha'i community activities, people that we throw in our lot with uh, together to to, to to build up uh, You know the social mm-hmm. and economic yeah. and spiritual foundations of the community. We, we, we develop the capacity. Now we know much better how to do it than than we did, but if it hadn't been for those those handfuls of people in South Carolina and Georgia and Alabama and and in Cambodia and in the Congo and in all the different places where this where this experience of of mass enrollment in the Bahai community took place, if it weren't for that painstaking effort at consolidation over decades, you know, we wouldn't have had any materials to work with. We wouldn't have had any experience to work with at for when it came time to systematize yeah. our, our educational process for, for the whole world. So
0: catch us up now. Uh, we've been I'm conscious of the time and uh, I would love to do it. Maybe we need to do part two of this podcast, which I have hey, done okay. before, but, um, <laughs> uh, catch us up now to 2020 in South Carolina, the successes, the challenges, and the current state of the community that has gone through such a roller coaster of transformation. Yeah, sure.
1: Well, you know, as it is in at any snapshot in time, it's a mixed bag, right? So the 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 huge numbers of the 1970s and the 1980s, I mean, we haven't we haven't seen anything like that in a while. But over the last over the last few years what we've seen is with the development, with the deployment of the training institute process, little by little in, in various communities around the state, some of that momentum is beginning to, to build again mm-hmm. at a, a manageable pace, right? We see that when whenever they're presented, children and grandchildren of people who became Baha'is in 1970 and 1980 are among the first people in a community who are ready to pray, and study and work and and start to build right. There still aren't enough people to initiate this this training institute process in all of the localities in South Carolina where there there would be there will be a ready response. Um, wherever we've tried it, um, it it's it's been successful hmm. universally. There's a there's a no doubt that the spiritual receptivity of people is. Hasn't changed all that much since mm. since 1970, mm. since 1910, right when Mister Gregory first uh, yeah first spoke first about letter, it. So yeah, yeah. so um, in my community of uh, of Florence, um, we've had some really great success in the past couple of years. There's a lot of mostly African American young people that have been attracted to the Bahai community uh, over the past couple of years. I don't I I don't have all the latest numbers, but we've had 20 or 30 who have uh, who've embraced the faith formally over the past year or two and way more than that that have uh, are participating in devotional gatherings and study circles um, um, beginning to animate junior youth groups and teach uh, children's classes so we have more than a hundred a few hundred people Mm. including family members and so forth that are that are involved in Baha'i community life to some degree or another. Of course, the pandemic, like everywhere, has sort of changed things. And now the Baha'i children's class that that my kids are in on Zoom has, we're with like one other family in Florence and a, a few in Charlotte, North Carolina, one in Manhattan. (laughs) <laughs> Some, uh, their cousins in in boston sometimes so 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 community life is uh is changed a lot sure. o- over the past yeah. over the past few months but i would say that the time is right in south carolina i mean particularly because of um you know the the uh political upheaval that the united states is experiencing this uh you know this latest kind of national reckoning about the the, the history of mm-hmm. of white supremacy and trying to decide you know mm-hmm. what kind of country are we going to be is you know a country where everybody belongs or where only only a portion belong south carolina is at the heart of that discussion and it has been since the colonial period right mm-hmm. you know because of the history of slavery and that the the civil war started here so it's not a surprise to me that the people young people and old people seem so ready yeah and and so it's just a matter of um are there enough enough workers to get the ball rolling in uh in enough of our cities and towns mm. uh mm. and see this process through um i think it's very promising very yeah. promising I don't, I don't think all that <laughs> all of that effort for so many decades it, it was certainly certainly not a waste the fairest fruit has yet to appear. I think the 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 best days are are yet ahead. You know, we can look back and to the, this this kind of golden opportunity in the nineteen seventies. That's a that's a foretaste of uh, of the next the next stage.
0: I think. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, on that hopeful note, let's end our conversation. Maybe we should have another one. There's so much more to go over. Uh, sure. But that's a a terrific distilled view of Baha'i history in South Carolina and, and some of the issues that Baha'is there have faced and are facing and, and will face. Um, hopefully it provides inspiration to people all over the globe that might be listening to this. If you're a Baha'i in South Africa or Cambodia or Mongolia, that there's, you know, there's applications uh, of this specific history to your to your own community. So, Dr. Louis Venters, thank you so much for sharing uh, from your just treasure trove of history and information. Uh, it's, it's so exciting, and I'm truly grateful for the work that you have done that was launched by a little listen on a radio station and then by a little history paper in, in, uh, in, in high school uh, into this, uh, this wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much. So grateful.
1: What a pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for giving me a chance to share.
0: Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much and good night.